Okay, we're in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1 still, 1 John chapter 1. You can open your Bibles to that section of God's Word, or if you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can turn to page 1021, that'll bring you right to our text this morning. And we're continuing our study in basically what characterizes Christians. What characterizes Christians? What should they look like? How does the Bible describe them? And in the course of doing this, we're going to... Last week we said Christians walk in the light. If you weren't here and you missed it, I would encourage you to listen to that message uh, via the internet or via the table. It's available in both locations. And tonight, or this morning, we're going to talk about Christians confessing their sin. Christians confess their sin, and we're going to look in the future weeks that Christians obey Christ's commandments, and Christians love, and Christians do not love the world, and many things that characterize the true Christian. So as we're going through this study, the right response for a Christian who says, hey, I don't do that as often as I should, or I didn't even realize that was a character trait of the Christian, the right response would be, start doing it. Right? That would be the right response. The wrong response would be, oh, I'm not going to do that. That response would be an indicator that maybe you're not a Christian. If you are unwilling to be characterized by the things that the Bible says Christianity is, that is a real clear indicator that you are not a Christian. And that's the argument that John is making. And then, obviously, if we go through these lessons and you see none of this stuff is true about my life. I don't walk in the light. I don't confess my sin. I don't love. I don't obey Christ's commands. Then you can, you can bet on the fact, I would bet on the fact, that you're really not a believer regardless of what you said 10 years ago or when you were a little child and you, and you made some profession of faith. The truth is this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your life will change. And when you're exposed to the truth, you'll respond to the truth. Not by rejecting it, not by casting it aside, but by receiving it and coming under it, being obedient to it. Does that make sense? Well, hopefully it does. Thank you. One amen. Excellent. I will take it and store it up with the other ones I have up here. So, looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-10, through 10, let's just read the text. We're going to jump right into it. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. And I'm, I'm starting in verse 5 for context. We're going to actually look at verse 8 through 10. But for context, let's read the verses we looked at last, last week. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. That is, heard from Christ. And now we tell you, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, God, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, verse 8, this is our text for this morning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And the Word, His Word, is not in us. This morning, inside of your bulletins, there is an outline. You can follow along. I say that almost every week. We are going to ask and answer this morning four important questions about the confession of sin, about the confession of sin, so that as Christians, we might correctly and continually practice this 
privilege. And that's what it is. It is a privilege, beloved. These four questions that we're going to ask and answer are the following. What does it mean to confess sin? That's the first one. That's foundational. Two, why do Christians continue to confess sin? Three, what is true, according to John, of those who don't confess sin? And four, what is true of Christians who do confess sin? What is true, according to John? Now, there is some confusion about exactly what confession of sin means biblically. And that's always the foundation, right? Anything we do in the Christian life should be based on what the Bible says, right? So if I get up here and say blah, 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 but you can't find my blah, blah, blah in the Bible, what should you do with my blah, blah, blah? Discard it. Do it gently, but discard it. Get rid of it. And there's a lot of confusion about the confession of sin for the Catholic person. Some of you have Catholic background, is that correct? For the Catholic person, it means a time when you go to the priest and begin your conversation with that priest, typically in private, saying, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been such and such a time, year, month, whatever, since my last confession, and these are my sins. So when I say you confess your sins to the Catholic, they have that in mind. But that practice, as it is outlined in the Catholic Church, is not taught in the Bible. It's not. Okay? So let's just start there. That's not taught in the Bible. That is taught by the tradition of the church. Others think of confession of sin as simply admission to sin. Admission to sin. So for instance, your kid steals the cookie. The kid says, Mommy, I stole the cookie. Mom says, Thank you for your confession. And they limit the definition of confession biblically to just admission. Admission. But it is more than that. So I think it's going to be helpful for us to start with the question, before we start talking about confession, what does it mean anyway, biblically? So what does it mean to confess sin? The word confess in 1 John 1.9 in your Bibles, that word as you see it, translated in the English confess, in the Greek it's two words put together and it literally means this, to say the same thing. To say the same thing. That is, to say the same as someone else, or to agree with someone about what they have said. Okay? So, for instance, if you get hauled down to the county jail, and they say, you robbed the liquor store, confess, what do they want you to do? They want you to agree with what they have said. That's what a confession is in that context. You are simply agreeing with them, yes, I robbed the liquor store. Okay? In the case of 1 John 1.9, when we think about that definition of confess, when Christians then confess their sin, they are to say the same thing about their sin as God says about their sin. As God says about their sin. They are to admit their sin, so certainly it includes admission, but also agreement with God about what God has said about their sin. They are to speak of their sin as God speaks of their sin in confession of sin. Does that make sense to you? They are to say the same thing. Sin, beloved, 
Sin is not, and here we go again. He's always talking about sin. Uh huh. I am, because it's always in the Word. It's always here. God thinks it's really important. That's why there's so much written about it. Sin is not just a brief lapse in judgment. Sin is not that. Sin is not just a poor choice or a simple mistake or an annoying habit. Those are inadequate definitions of sin. It is not saying the same thing that God says about sin. You know what sin is? Sin is rebellion against God, the Creator. The Almighty, Sovereign, Powerful God. It is flat out, open face rebellion. Every sin. Gossip, lying, grudges, hatred, unforgiveness, slander, evil speech, rebellion against God. It is evil. It is wickedness. It is not something to defend, make excuses for, justify in our minds or with our friends, find pleasure in. Sin is not something to find pleasure in. If we're confessing it, if we're agreeing with God about what He says about sin, He finds no pleasure in sin. It is something to repent of, turn from, leave behind, abandon, hate. Strong word, right? Appropriate for sin. Appropriate. We are to be, if we are confessing our sin, disgusted by. Beloved, not your partner's sin, not your neighbor's sin, not the guy on the other side of the pew's sin. Your sin. My sin. That's what I'm to hate. That's what I'm to be disgusted by. That's what I should be repulsed by. That's what I should be turning from if I'm truly confessing my sin. Much more than admission. Beloved, sin has no place in the lives of those who walk in the light, who are in fellowship with, in relationship with God, who is light. We looked at that last week, remember? For those of you that were here, we are in fellowship with a God who is holy, morally pure, and without sin. That is the God who Christians have fellowship with. Psalm 5.4 says this, that God takes no pleasure in wickedness. I said it earlier. He takes no pleasure in wickedness, and in fact, no evil dwells with Him. Not any. He goes further in Psalm 5.5. You can check it out for yourself. And says He hates. There's that word. He hates all evildoers or those who do iniquity. Not going to hear that very often, but it is in the Bible. It is in the Bible. To confess or be in agreement with God about our sin should mean, as I've already said, that we take no pleasure in sin. If God takes no pleasure in sin, and I'm confessing my sin, I'm agreeing with Him, then I should take no pleasure in my sin either when I confess it. It is to acknowledge that sin should not be a part of our lives. No part. It is to hate sin as God hates sin. It is to agree that God is just in hating it. Right? 
Sometimes we do this little thing, you know. Well, I don't know. I don't think that's right, that God comes down so hard on sin. Well, then you're not confessing sin. You're not confessing sin. In confession of sin, you must agree that it is right for God to hate your sin. Sin grieves God, beloved. It grieves Him for He is holy. And because of that, as Christians, it should grieve us too. It should break our hearts. When it appears in our lives. David's confession. You know, great King David of Israel. His confession to God about sin with Bathsheba. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but maybe some of you know it. He basically, it was terror, it was bad. He committed this sin with Bathsheba. His confession to God is an excellent illustration of everything I have just said to you in the last few minutes. So I want you to read it with me. I want you to hear it. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You can flip there. It's almost in the middle of your Bible. Psalms. But specifically, we're looking at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 10. And here, recorded for us, are the words of David's confession of his sin. And it goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God. This is in response to his sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. It's another word for sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Another word for sin. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, you only, have I sinned. Now get this. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the kingdom. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against a lot of people. But here, David recognizes that ultimately his sin is flat out rebellion against God. And he says, I have sinned against you. I sinned and done what is evil. He calls it evil. He doesn't try to dismiss it. He doesn't try to bring it down a level. He doesn't try to make excuses. Well, you don't understand, God. I was just, you know, I had a real bad upbringing and everything, and I've got some bad habits in my life I'm trying to break. He doesn't do that. He says it's evil. When's the last time you said, my sin is evil? Right? Oh, you know, the, the evil people, they're the ones locked up in prison, the murderers and stuff. No. Yeah, that's evil too. Murder is evil. Gossip is evil. Unforgiveness is evil. You get it? He says it's evil in your sight so that you may be justified. Here it is. You are justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. You have every right to come down on my evil sin. You have every right to say what you say about my sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness Let the bones that you have broken 
rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. One writer says this in regard to confession of sins. He says, is the willingness to acknowledge and admit our sins and to call them what God calls them. We must honestly confront and frankly confess the sins we are guilty of without defending ourselves or excusing our sinful deeds. Here's one more. This is from a guy a long, long time ago, way, way back, one of the early church guys. I love this quote. So it sounds a little funny because they speak in that other language, not other language, but style of language. He says, He, it's Augustine, by the way, He who confesses and condemns his sins already acts with God. God condemns thy sins. If thou also dost condemn them, thou art linked on to God. Did you get that? God condemns sin. If you're linked to God, you'll condemn your sin. Not entertain it. Not make room for it. Not enjoy it. By the word confess, by the way, the word confess that we've been looking at in 1 John 1, nine, it's in the present tense in the Greek. So what does that mean? It means this, that confession of sin is an ongoing practice. That's what it means when it's in the present tense. It's an ongoing practice for the Christian. It is not, John is not talking about a one-time event that occurred somewhere in your past. So when we talk about Christians confessing sin, it's not something they do once. They do it on a regular, ongoing basis. And of course, that brings me to the second question about confession of sin. Why do Christians continue to confess sin? Why? Well, that's obvious, dummy. I hope you weren't referring to me when you said that. Just hypothetically speaking, we sin. That's true. But I want you to look at it a little bit differently. The answer in part, and of course it is, we do continue to confess sin because as Christians living in a fallen world and with a fallen nature, we do continue to sin. But in part, this answer is connected to the message that we talked about and looked at in detail from last week, 1 John 1, 5-7. Christians walk in the light. Christians walk in the light, meaning as a general rule, and now I'm just kind of picking up from last week, true Christians, by the power of God, not their own strength, actually strive to submit their lives to the truth of God's Word and His righteousness. That's what Christians are to do. Not perfectly, and sometimes less, and sometimes more, but in some measure, Christians walk in the light. That's what John is saying. Why? Well, we looked at this last week. Because they have fellowship with, are partner with, are in relationship with God, who is light. Who is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. So what does that have to do with Christians confessing sin? As a Christian, hear this, as a Christian walks in the life as a pattern, or walks in the light, that is, as a pattern of life, as Christians walk in the light as a pattern of life, you know what happens? 
their sins will be exposed to them. Their sins will be exposed to them. When they continually hold their life up to the light of God's truth and righteousness, it will reveal their wickedness, their their fallenness, their failings, their evil, their unrighteousness. It will reveal all that. It will show it to them as they hold it up in the light of God's truth and righteousness. And that should compel them to confess it to God. To admit and to agree with God about it by calling it what it is and by turning from it. God's light, His truth, and His righteousness reveals the darkness, beloved, that is bound up in our hearts. That is bound up in our hearts. Do you know why Christians confess sin? Because Christians walk in the light. And as they do, more and more and more sin is revealed to them. Not someone else's, theirs. One writer says this, When we have fellowship with God, we cannot hide our sins. Right? God is that super powerful spotlight that just comes in. Boom! And all of the rats and roaches and yucky stuff running around are quickly made evident. All the ones hiding in the cracks and crevices, now you see how filthy this place really is when God's light comes in. Sins like darkness have no place in God's light, the writer says. They must be removed. They must be removed. One writer says, a walk in the light, truth, and holiness, as we've defined it, exposes any sin. And therefore he states this, genuine believers are characterized by the confession of sin, and I've already said this, and we're just saying it again, because of their fellowship with the God who is light. Another writer adds this, walking in the light is demonstrated not by the denial of sin, but by confessing and abandoning it. Abandoning it. But apparently, there were some people in John's day claiming to be part of the Christian community, but not confessing their sin. Why? Well, that brings me to the third question about the confession of sin. That's in your outline. What is true of those who don't confess sin? Well, we'll see that in verse 8 and verse 10 of 1 John chapter 1. The first one says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10 If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The if we, the if we that John keeps using, is used here by John hypothetically. Meaning, if we were to say, as they have said, and I talked about this when we did the introduction, referring to those professing Christians who were with the church initially, but had left them and now separated themselves from them. You see that in 1 John 2.19. They were with us, but they have left us, proving they were never really of us. And now they were attempting to deceive the body of Christ, and you see that in 1 John 2.26. I write these things that they might not deceive you. 
If we say these things, then like them, those professors, the truth is not in us and God's Word is not in us. And even worse, beloved, we make God out to be a liar. That should make you think twice. Now I'll get to that in a moment. But the professing Christians who claimed to have fellowship with God and yet did not confess their sins resulted from, ultimately, their denial of sin. They didn't confess their sins because they were just deniers. They denied that sin existed in their inner nature and in or, and or in their daily lives. So sin wasn't present and sin wasn't actual. They said they had no sin, verse 8, and that they had not sinned, verse 10. What was the basis for their denial? Well, people have a lot of ideas about what the basis for their denial was. It's hard for us to know for sure. As I've said before, it is possible that the roots of Gnostic-type thinking, and we talked about this, I don't want to go into it again today, this Gnostic-type thinking had invaded the church, and some had mixed that worldly, erroneous philosophy with God's truth. Beloved, that's a recipe for disaster, just so you know. Anytime we take the world's philosophies and mix them and mingle them together with the pure truth of God's Word, you are asking for a tragedy. Because it sounds kind of right, but it's a lie. It's a lie. It would be wrong to think that the denial of sin, by the way, just adding this, was just some strange ancient phenomenon because, you know, like that's something they did back in the first century. I mean, who denies sin today? Come on. Okay. It's still going on today, beloved. Let me, let me try to work this through with you. And by the way, when we deny sin, either in us or the reality of it, we do so at our own peril. We do so at our own peril. We are taught by the world this, that most people are inherently good. Christians even say that kind of stuff. But that's not biblical. The world says, you know, most people are inherently good. You just, you just have to see it rightly. What? The Bible doesn't explain people that way. They say they have a good nature, a good heart. You know, most people. Except for the bad ones that are locked up, of course. That they have no inherited sin problem. They don't have a problem. They, don't, they didn't inherit sin. Oh, they may not be perfect. You know, no one's going to make that claim. I'm not saying I'm perfect or anything, but I'm not going to go as far to a, as identifying myself as a sinner. That's the world's philosophy. No, we're good people. But the Bible says the exact opposite. So, beloved, it's the world or the Bible. It's the world or the Bible. It's always the case. And two, I expect the world to believe the world. What I don't expect is when Christians believe the world. That's where it gets really complicated and confusing and quite a burden for a pastor and for churches. The suggestion is made by some in our world that we don't need salvation from our sin. Colleges like this one. The, uh, the intellectual like this one. In fact, they will say, that's really a myth. What we really need is education 
more education, or enlightenment, or the right policies, or the right laws, or the right government to overcome our problems. Really? Really, you think that's the problem with the world? They just need more education? You know what happens when you educate a sinner? You have an educated sinner! You don't educate sin out of people. They just get more creative in how they manifest their sin. They're better at denying it, excusing it, making excuses for it. In one sense, I see the denial of sin. Think about this with me. I see the denial of sin every time Americans are asked in a poll, what is the greatest problem with our country? What do they say, beloved? Economy. Look at the polls. Well, there's another poll that says 80% of America is Christian. It's wrong. But if that's what it says, that's what they claim. But supposedly these Christians, when asked, what is the greatest problem in our world, in our country specifically? The economy. The economy is our biggest problem? No. Sin is our biggest problem. It is sin that destroys and perverts economies. It is sin that destroys and perverts corporations and governments and families and churches and communities and relationships and marriages. It is sin. Sin is our biggest problem. Not sin out there somewhere but sin right here. Right there. Not only do we have sin, beloved, but we have sin. And unfortunately, it is not just the lost world trying to deny the reality of sin, but even churches get in on this business. And I put that in quotes, beloved. I put that, the word churches in quotes, meaning I don't believe they're real churches, true churches. You don't believe me? Or you want some proof? Here's some proof. Here's a quote from Robert Schuller. Maybe you remember him, maybe not. He's out of the limelight now. He was the founder of the former Crystal Cathedral, and he ran a program. That's down in Orange County. You can check it out. An incredible building built with tons of glass. Fantastic, wonderful, nice. It'll all burn. But anyway, he also did a program called The Hour of Power, ministry. Doesn't that sound great? What are you watching? I'm watching the hour of power. I'm going to just receive one hour of power and it'll be ready to just take on the world. Alright? Alright, here's a quote from Robert Schuller. He's a false teacher. It's what he is. What we need is to positive. Positive. Like positive. I don't even know if that's a word. That's what he, I'm just quoting him. We need to positive the words that have only had a negative connotation. Well, tell me more, Robert. Tell me more. There is no greater damage that can be done than to refer to the lost sinful condition of man. Did you hear that? There is no greater damage that can be done than to talk about man's sinful condition? What? Oh, that's not... That's not here's some more. I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive 
to the evangelism enterprise, then the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. One more. Just my blood. Tony, my blood is boiling. You feel it? Can you feel the heat coming from this side? All right, baby. I'm Here it is. Jesus never called a person a sinner. Rather, he reserved his righteous rebuke for those who use their religious authority, like a guy like me, to generate guilt. I'm not trying to generate guilt. But anyway, see how he, see how he pictures it? He, Jesus comes against those guys that spoke against sin. They're trying to generate guilt and cause people to lose their ability to taste and enjoy their right to dignity. <laughs> okay. Listen, beloved. His ministry was phenomenally successful. Phenomenally successful. It was so successful that he was able back in 1980 to construct an $18 million building to house his church. Now I give God praise that they are bankrupt. Now, they are bankrupt. See, there are good consequences to a messed up economy. The building is now owned by the Catholic Church, beloved. The Crystal Cathedral is housed by the Catholic Church. But I just pointed that out to show you that you think this is some, in some corner this is being made? That this is some, you know, oh, that's just one example off. That's not reality. He had a huge TV audience. He was bringing in millions of dollars. People were crowding his church and his positive message. He's a denier of sin. You think this is just a first century problem? Over the years, by the way, there have been various Christian groups that will even go as far as saying they may not deny that they want sin, but now they claim to be sinless. To be sinless. So what they do is they go to verse 8 here where it says, if we say we have no sin, and they add in the word had. If we say we have had no sin. Therefore, they feel like they're still justified. So, hey, we're not saying we've never sinned. Oh, that would be ridiculous. All we're saying is we've arrived. We've come to a place in our Christian life where we no longer sin. (laughs) They are still breathing, brother, so I don't understand their statement. If they were walking in the light, verses 5 through 7, there is no way they could with a straight face continue to make some ridiculous statement like they no longer sin. Here's the truth of my Christian life. The longer and more progressively I walk in the light, more sin is revealed. (sighs) Thought I was doing good until I opened the Word, exposed myself to it. Oh, man. Right? Right? So all I know about this guy or woman who says they no longer sin, I can, I can guarantee you one thing. You don't walk in the light. You're, you're making the claim you walk in the light. If you walked in the light of God and His truth and righteousness, oh, you wouldn't dare be so foolish to say you no longer sin. Please. 
People don't like to talk about sin, right? We don't like to talk about it, so they deny it, they explain it away. Here's a new one. Let's just redefine it. Let's just say it's not sin anymore. Like homosexuality. I bring it up. We don't talk about homosexuality here every week. But I bring it up because it's a big deal, especially right now and in our culture and has been for some time. But now homosexuality is a valid and equally respected sexual orientation. It is no longer sin. Oh yeah, but that's, that's what the world is saying. Beloved, that's what Christians now, and I put it in quotes, that's what Christians are now saying in some places. More and more. Frightening to me. They are redefining what God calls sin so that it is no longer sin. They are deniers of sin. Recent article. Again, MSN this week. Do you remember that um, terrible story about, or I think it's Rutgers or Rutgers, I'm probably saying it wrong, it's a university where there were two young men and they were roommates and the one young man was a homosexual and the other, his roommate, recorded him with his partner interacting and then they showed it and they made it available and so this young man who was a homosexual ended up committing suicide. Another tragic story of what sin does. The parents of the young man, the homosexual who died, were Christians or are or claim to be. Okay? Here's the uh, headline article. Parents of Rucker student who committed suicide, here's their quote, Sin needs to be taken out of homosexuality. Do you know why they said that? Because they believe the reason their son committed suicide is because people keep saying it's sin. And so he felt burdened by that and therefore he committed suicide. So it's our fault. I'm at fault. If I say sin is a homosexuality, if a young man or a young woman trapped in the sin were to commit suicide, I'm at fault. So I should stop saying it's sin even though the Word of God clearly says it is. So I guess I could just say other things aren't sin. Adultery. Let's take the word sin out of adultery. Let's just let them be at peace. Come on. It's really not sin. I mean, as long as they love each other. Isn't that what it's all about? And can't you love more than one person? You see where I'm going with this? So we redefine it. But that's another situation. Let's go back to the text. 1 John 1, 8, 1, 10. Remind you again, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sin, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. Those who in one way or another deny their sin, either the reality of their sin nature or the reality of their sinful acts in their life are self-deceived. They are self-deceived in God's truth. God's Word is not in them. The phrase in verse 8, we deceive ourselves, it implies that they are doing it to themselves. They are not being deceived. They are deceiving. Not someone else. Themselves. They cannot blame someone else for their foolish denial. They are deceiving themselves. Which is just another act of sin. Another act of rebellion against God. Their denial indicates that they are void of the truth and void of God's Word, as John says, which one writer states is the equivalent to saying if you are not a confessor of sin as God defines it, you are not a true Christian.
One writer adds this, I think it's worth noting. When the truth, now he says they're void of the truth, void of his word. When the truth is not in us, we are not by any means empty, but are full of fictions, fables, myths, self-made fancies, notions that are not so. You understand that? When we're void of the truth, it creates a void. And lies quickly make their way in to fill it up. It just I'm always struck by the fact that Christians are accused of being the myth producers. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christians have the truth. They fellowship with the God of truth. And when the truth is void, that person is left with myths, with lies, with notions that are not so. Worst of all, worst of all, beloved, those who say they have not sinned, John says they make God a liar. You understand here the progression as we move through this. John says in verse 6 that if someone walks in darkness while claiming to have fellowship with God, they are liars based on their actions. Their actions prove they're not telling the truth. But now they go from just being liars to making God a liar. By making God a liar. How do they do that? Based on their false claims. See, their statements stand in direct contradiction to God's statements. That's how they make God a liar. What statements? Well, the ones that God makes about humanity in His Word and about their sinful nature and humanity's desperate need for God's mercy and grace and humanity's desperate need to be rescued from God's wrath against our sin. Why do we think God is so angry? He's angry with sin! It denies the truth of God's statement for our need of a Savior. Why do we need a Savior if there is no sin? A Savior that saves people from sin, beloved. The Gospel, the Gospel that we say, we proclaim, that we believe, it assumes, it presupposes the sinfulness of mankind. To deny our sin is to make the gospel nonsensical, irrational, and completely and totally absurd to deny our sin. So we have looked at what John says about those who deny their sin. Let's close with something positive. And I mean that in the most biblical way. Something good. What is true of Christians who do confess their sin? What is true of them? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What is true of confessors is they are continually forgiven of their sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now that is awesome, but I want us to think about that statement before we just assume it, that we know what it means. Think about it for a moment. The Bible makes it clear that those who have trusted in Jesus Christ already have forgiveness of all their sins. Doesn't it? It does. That is, their sin debt has been canceled or the charges against them have been dismissed because of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on their behalf. In fact, in the same letter, 
1 John, in chapter 2, he will later say this in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, as he refers to them, because your sins are now already forgiven for His name's sake, for Christ. As we look through Scripture, we see this repeated truth over and over. Colossians 2, 13-14, and it says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us, how many? All our trespasses, another word for sin, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's language about our sin. Our sin debt, beloved. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. I love that passage. Here's another one, Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have, present reality, redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. This is why Paul can make that bold statement in Romans 8.1 where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation, beloved? Because the Christian's sins have been forgiven or canceled out because Jesus Christ paid for them when He satisfied God's justice by taking upon Himself the wrath of God that our sin deserves. He hung in the sinner's place. God treated Jesus on the cross as if He were us, punishing Him for my sin, our sin. What that means, beloved, is if I die as a Christian without confessing my last sin to God, regardless of what some religious organizations may say, I am still going to heaven. I am still going to heaven because I do not remain unforgiven for that sin or under God's wrath. Do you understand that? That's what the Word clearly communicates. Forgiveness of my sins, forgiveness of your sins, is always, always will be always has been and always will be, based solely on the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That is the clear and precise message of Scripture. So, having said all that, what do I make of 1 John 1.9 that says this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Well, I think the best way to understand this is while we rest assured, we rest assured that our sins are permanently Forgiven, listen closely, permanently forgiven in a legal sense because God's judgment against them has been fulfilled at the cross. There is another kind of forgiveness for the Christian, one some Bible scholars call paternal or familial, which refers to family forgiveness. Family forgiveness. When a Christian, I'm going to explain this, when a Christian sins, they should be convicted and confess their sin to God, their Heavenly Father, in order that their relationship with Him would not be clouded by sin in any way. Regarding this type of forgiveness from God, one writer says these words, this is granted by God not as a judge, 
That happened at the cross. But as a father, he is still grieved when his children sin. Beloved, do you think God doesn't care if you sin? Then you don't understand sin and you don't understand God. He absolutely loathes sin. He hates sin. He despises sin. And he especially despises and hates it in the life of his children who are to be walking in the light and have fellowship with him in whom there is no darkness at all. One writer says, from a human standpoint, our fellowship can be marred by sin. That is, spoiled by sin. Not removed, not broken, not done away with. Listen, my fellowship can never be done away with with God. Otherwise, I'm not a Christian anymore. That means I go in and out of salvation from one week to the next. That's not true. But my fellowship with a God who is light can be marred by my sin and my unwillingness to confess it. Let me explain it this way. When you're a child or when you were a child and you violated one of your parents' rules, do you remember? Yeah, it's hard to remember, isn't it? That did not mean that you were no longer their child, right? Or that they stopped loving you? Hopefully not. I mean, we have messed up parents and this is not going to be a perfect illustration because who knows where we came from. But just go with me with the illustration. We violate the rule. It doesn't mean now I'm not my kids, my mom and dad's kid. It doesn't mean they stopped loving me. But there is a real displeasure due to my disobedience on the part of my parents and there is a cloud now of displeasure that exists in that home. The child can feel it. Do you remember what I'm talking about as a child? You knew mom and dad were not happy, were displeased with your disobedience, with your violation of their rules. Things are not like they were before and you know it. But when the child confesses and finds the forgiveness of his parents, the fellowship or the relationship that they previously had is experienced again to its fullest to its fullest, the, the fellowship is then restored. What was marred is no longer marred. What is spoiled is now pure and good. Let me say it this way. <clears throat> Unconfessed sin for the Christian does not remove their salvation, but it does temporarily damage their fellowship with God who is light. Therefore, they continually confess their sins And gladly, beloved, this is the good news, gladly find God's complete forgiveness and restoration in a familial sense, in a family sense, in a paternal sense. One writer says this, the forgiveness of 1 John 1.9 is parental forgiveness, relational forgiveness. It's restorational. It's like Psalm 32, which we'll read in a moment. Psalm 51, which we read earlier from David, where you have this idea of restore to me the joy of thy salvation. In addition, the Apostle John says confessors are cleansed. They're cleansed when they confess their sin, which implies that sin makes us dirty, beloved. It makes us dirty. It pollutes us. It leaves a stain. A nasty stain. You know how your women are about your stains, right? You won't even come out. I mean, I think it's no big deal. There's a little stain there. But no, you cannot go out into public with that little stain. Sin leaves a stain on our soul, beloved. And we're uncomfortable with it. 
pollutes us. But beloved, you and I, you, the, the wife or the woman might have some incredible solution to clean the stain out of her dress, but we have no way of doing it in our own strength. We cannot remove that stain. We can't. But God can and does. He can and does when we confess our sin to Him. He does it by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we read in verse 7. He cleanses us by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a reference to Jesus' brutal death on the cross. If the cross, it is the cross, beloved, of Jesus that continually cleanses us before God as we sin and when we sin and confess it. As a result of confessing our sins, you know what happens? This is what happens. We repeatedly can know and can enjoy the reality of our forgiveness and cleansing. This should cause us to do this. Be bold! Be bold and eager confessors of our sin. Because when I come to God and confess, admit, and agree with Him, you know what I find? Not a slap in the face. Not a rejection. I find my God there forgiving and cleansing me, restoring me, bringing back to me the joy of my salvation that I can be with Him because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I should be confessor and we I know we're over time and I don't know what we're going to do but here's Psalm 32 we just got to read it because you have to hear it you have to you have to leave with this you have to hear this here's Psalm 32 listen to the words of David how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit Now listen to what he says. When I kept silent about my sin, when I didn't confess it, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Why do you think God's hand would be heavy upon His child when they sin? He doesn't want them to sin, beloved. He wants them to confess it. He wants them to turn from it. He loves them. He loves them. And then David says, My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. Selah. Which is just like a way of just pausing and just stopping and thinking about what was just said. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Here's the conclusion. Christians, beloved, they walk in the light. They, they walk in the light which is God's truth and righteousness. And as they do, as we do, as Christians, you know what happens? Our sins are exposed. Oh no! Oh yes! Yes! Our sins are exposed. But we don't conceal our sins. We don't run away and hide. We don't ignore them. But Christians gladly confess their sins to God. They confess them. They admit the wickedness they see in their lives. They admit it gladly and agree with God that it must not be a part of their lives any longer. And they repent and they turn from it. And they do this again 
And again, as the light exposes them to sin in their lives. And as they confess, you know what happens? They, they know and experience the Father's forgiveness and cleansing and the joy of their salvation is renewed. It is renewed. And they are motivated and strengthened to continue walking in the light as He is in the light. I don't know about you, beloved, but I need all the motivation and strength I can get to stay at this Christian thing. Confess, beloved. Confess. Admit and agree with God. Turn from your sin and there you will find your Father with open arms, forgiving and cleansing you and removing that stain from your life. Empowering you to live for Him. Well, we have communion now. We do it on the first Sunday of every month. And let me read this to you real quick. You know, Paul tells the Corinthian church, listen, I received from the Lord that what I'm going to give to you. You need to do the Lord's Supper. He talks to him uh, about the Lord's Supper. I'll just pick up in verse 23. I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup with wine in it after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So his body represents the bread. The wine represents his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Because in the Lord's death, we have forgiveness and cleansing. We have eternal life. We have been justified. And then he says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now there's a context here that we can't spend time going into, but the church was messed up. And they were doing some very inappropriate things in the way they treated each other. They were sinning against one another. So here Paul says, you come together, get this, you come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and then you sin against one another in the process of doing that. You completely have missed it. You are taking communion in an unworthy way. For God gave Christ His Son to die for your sin. That not only would you not experience the penalty of it, but that you would be freed from its power. That you would stop sinning. That you would walk in the light. That you would conform your life to His truth and righteousness. So when we come to the Lord's table, table, it is a good idea to pause, to think, to think about sin, and to confess it, to admit it, and to agree with God about it. For beloved, when we partake, we are proclaiming what? The Lord's death on our behalf. Why did He die for us, beloved? It was for sin! It was not only to keep us from the pits of hell and to bring us into the glories of heaven, but it was to remove sin from our lives. To crush its power that it had over us before Christ came into our lives. So to continue to walk in sin unrepentantly, unconfessingly, kind of makes a mockery of this meal. So before you partake, Confess. Think and confess. That's what I would ask you to do. 
The elements are going to be passed. We ask that you wait. If you're not a believer or you're not sure you're a believer, don't take the elements. Don't take them. They're for Christians. They're for Christians. And as the music plays and we wait until all the elements have been passed, go to God, beloved. Go to God and find the renewal of your salvation. Find joy in your salvation as you confess your sins to Him and He forgives you and cleanses you. I'm going to pray for the elements right now. Father God, we thank You for this time. And Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I just ask, Lord, it would continue to work in our hearts, continue to change us, continue to transform us. Father, that we would, we would not resist it. Gosh, we resist so many things. We resist the truth. Why? Why do we do that? Sin. It's just sin. So, Father, I pray that we would just repent of it. That we would open our hearts, our minds to Your truth and just let it have its way with us because it's good for us. It's good for us. Father, may Your Spirit work in our heart to convict us of sin. And may we, based on what we know, boldly, quickly come to You as our Father and confess that sin to You now. Thank You for this meal and thank You for what it communicates and thank You for what it reminds us of as we proclaim the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is in His name that we pray these things. Amen.